This is Maya Thomas, the producer of the DSC podcast. DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn, you're the boss. Disability Disability done done different, different. candid conversations. Hope you're ready because we're starting. Welcome to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations in a COVID World. Welcome to Vanessa Toy, my co-director. Hi, everyone. A lot of you wouldn't know that Vanessa is also my wife. Um, Vanessa's standing in for Evie, who's off developing... Lots of COVID resources that some of you are seeing some of already, but yeah, we're really... She's in the trenches. We're pumping out a lot at the moment. Workshops, webinars, templates, lots of stuff that's already been really well taken up. So thank you, Vanessa, for stepping in for Evie, and thank you, Evie, for working so incredibly hard. Welcome, Maya Thomas, our producer, but you're not in the studio. No, I'm not. I am in my cosy little home on the other side of Melbourne. So hello, everyone. And our guest today is Edward Burt, and I'm particularly excited about doing this podcast with Edward. I've known him for a number of years. And the thing about Edward is he comes from a very person-centered background. He's done the hands-on work. He's got a really deep personal commitment to people with disability. And now he's Chief Operating Officer, which means he's at the very pointy end of one of the largest organizations working with people with disability, the Disability Trust, in New South Wales. So We're very interested to talk to Edward about what it's like to try to remain person-centred while there's so much shit to be done. So welcome, Edward. Thanks, Roland. I'm looking forward to chatting today. And when you put it like that, you you freak me out a little bit. So (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes we have to pause to think what we're actually doing, don't we? Yeah. I actually sent Edward an email three days ago saying, please don't cancel on us because I know how busy you'll be getting and there'll be so many other demands on you. And you get to this morning and you think, I I really don't want to do this. I just need to be doing important stuff, not talking stuff. And so I'm really grateful that you didn't cancel on us and and that you're here. And I I, I want to kick off with a, a slightly personal question for me in the sense of a lot of us seek to be CEOs and senior managers. And I did, and I became a CEO and I expected there to be challenges. I was honestly surprised at how big some of the challenges were, but they were challenges, they were big, they were expected. No one signed up for the scale of what we're currently seeing with COVID-19 and what you're currently seeing in in the disability sector. When I look back, I, I think I'm grateful that I'm not a CEO right now because I wouldn't be able to switch off at all. I'd find it very hard to go to sleep. I'd very find it you know, hard to be with my family. I'm finding it hard anywhere at the moment. We can talk about that, but that's, we're not talking to me. We're talking to you. So how, how are you coping with the sheer level of stress as Chief Operations Officer of um, an organisation that um, supports, assists and cares, we can use the word care again, for so many people with disability in New South Wales? How are we coping? Uh, how are just you coping? No, I didn't say we. How, yeah. how am I coping? Uh, I think like everybody, I am taking it a day at a time and a week at a time. And, um, you know, things are just moving and evolving so rapidly. I think everybody, including me, is in the position that they are in. Uh, with, uh, I still have my job. Uh, I'm needed at the moment uh, in terms of, you know, helping to lead a large organisation with 1,700 people uh, and thousands of people uh, 
providing requiring support and um, you know so that's not going away any any time soon <laughs> so I'm grateful for that that um, you know that I have a I have a role to play in a, in a job um, and uh, you know, I'm seeing all of these people, uh, some of some of whom from our own services, who've been impacted through service closures and and reduction in in hours, um, uh, which is really deeply upsetting uh, for everybody. So I think, you know, I I think probably um, I have moments where I'm I feel incredibly anxious uh, and worried, and um, and then I have moments where I think there is some terrific uh, innovations that are going on as well. Uh, we've got um, people learning new new ways of doing things, um, new approaches, um, and uh, you know we just have to keep moving forward. Uh, I, I learned that quarantine from the French means 40 days. Um, I didn't know that. So um, that's that's something to keep in mind. We are going to be in this state for some time and uh, we need to be thinking, you know, what's on the other side of this? What are the things that we're going to learn on this journey together and how can we bet, be better at the end of it? And it's interesting that you talk about, um, you know, having anxiety and then also feeling, you know, you know, noticing and feeling excited about the innovations because we, we noticed mm. that too. And um, can you say a little bit more about, you know, what, what helps with the managing of the anxiety for you? What are you noticing? Um, do you mean personally, what am I doing to manage that? I'm probably going to ask um, you both actually, but yeah, first for you. Yeah. Uh, look, I think um, I've got a great team around me. Um, you'd know Margaret Bowen, our CEO, who's a, an amazing woman, um, who's, who's leading the organisation, uh, our executive team, um, and Suze uh, Mandikos, our Chief Financial Officer, um, all the people who have a deep commitment to what we're doing, uh, a deep concern about the impacts on the organisation and the people we're supporting. So I think that makes it easier. And I think I've got some habits, I suppose, that make it um, somewhat easier for me to cope uh, in terms of, you know, um, taking care of myself, uh, you know, physically, um, trying to stay um, healthy and well. Um, you know, I've always had an interest in that. So I think that at times like these, those things do um, put you in a probably a better place. Um, and I, I do try to uh, be as resilient as I can be. Um, been through having been through a lot of difficult, uh, highly complex roles in my career as well. I think uh, you know probably stands me in a good place. Uh, it's not the first time I've I've you know faced significant challenges in my career so i think uh, that's that's helpful as well you can so, roll, you can roll through a fair bit of the anxiety yeah, can't we, you? We, yeah. We, we did we did a survey um, not so long ago of a very large group of staff and asked them what is it that supports you when times get really hard what is it that supports you during challenges and they said mm. exactly what you just said um, edward teamwork knowing the organization has my back when we're getting towards social distancing, when we're walk, working more remotely, are you actively thinking about how you continue to um, collaborate and foster teamwork? Yes. It, well, that's been super interesting, actually, because we've been wrestling with, you know, this sort of 
uh, online collaboration uh, meetings, you know, th through our senior management team, for example, or our clinical uh, teams who work at great distances uh, from Bega up to the Hunter, um, you know, there's a, that's, that's a good seven or eight hours uh, in the car. Um, so lots of inefficiencies uh, and really a lot of what, what you find is if not everybody's not on the same playing field in terms of use of technology, uh, then those people the out, at the out, in the regions are disadvantaged and continue to be disadvantaged. So really what we're learning through the last couple of weeks is, has been bleedingly obvious, but, and we all kind of knew it anyway, that those people uh, were continuing to be the poor cousins, if you like. Um, so we, we're, we're learning of the, of the most suitable, effective use of technology, if that makes sense. That's exciting. So you, you're saying it's really highlighting where they don't, where some some teams you, um, were already a little bit too disconnected yeah. um, from working remote, and that and, yeah, it's and, that yeah. it's that classic thing of you know a head office, a headquarters, um, and we've all probably been in that situation where you both. It, most people in their career, they they have an experience where they're working in the in the central office and then working in one of the regional locations, um, and you do have that sense of of distance and and not feeling quite part of the the machinations of of the decision making in the heart of the org, even if you're in a senior role, for example. Uh, and I think that's we're learning how to do that better through the use of, of our technology. And I think that's been improving for a number of years, but this COVID crisis is now really um, highlighting. Uh, I was talking to a, a behaviour support practitioner yesterday in Bega, um, Kylie, one of our um, fantastic team members down there, when I, I linked into their clinical team meeting briefly and they had um, 17 people online and um, we were all, but everybody, even though there was a few people in this uh, office still in, in Wollongong, um, and the, but they were online as well. And, and so they were at the same level uh, of uh, advantage or disadvantage as Kylie was. And she was, and I just said, oh, how's everybody finding it? And she said, you know what? It's fantastic. She said, finally, I feel like I'm in the meeting and we're, you know, we're, we're all in this together. It's like, you know, so that that was quite eye-opening. I thought somebody would say that, but um, it's been so frustrating for, for people for so long. Yeah, yeah. so it, it, that's a good example of one of the advantages of this, isn't it? It brings it to a head mm. and it forces us to solve the problem for everybody. Mm. So, and I know for yep. Disability Trust, you've tried to solve these for a long time because you are, you've got, you're spread over such a big geographic region. Yeah. We're finding some big advantages. Yeah. We had a family meeting by Zoom last night and it was the best family get together we've had in quite a while, and we've decided to do it twice weekly. And there's a couple of oh, people really? people who tend to be um, a bit more reticent in coming together and speaking, but they really um, behind the screen really came forward. It was it was really different, just like you're saying wow. um, in the work situation. So, um, what's it? Talk about what we're going to do as an organisation, Vanessa, because you're leading it. Mm. Well, I mean, it's an evolving thing, as it would be for you. Every day we keep coming up with new ways, but we're just about to set up, um, we decided this morning to set up a social calendar 
um, for our team so that anyone can input a, a Zoom social connection. So we're going to, I'm going to put them in for every morning for us to have a, a social, like a coffee catch up. And whoever um, comes, comes. Whoever yeah. comes, comes. Because we've got people in other states and that, that would mean them getting up yeah. at five in yeah. the morning. So it won't work for everyone, but we'll probably have some in the afternoon. We so already have a, a weekly end of the week. Drinks. Um, drinks and decompress. Oh, do you? Oh, you do that yeah. online, do you? We, yeah. we call it poets at four o'clock on a Friday, Edward, and it's piss off early tomorrow is Saturday. <laughs> okay. And I think because we've, we've been doing poets once a month for a long time because one of the challenges of remote teaming, as, every, as mm. you would know now, is, is that, you know, it's hard for people to get enough of a sense of team. But it really needs mm. to ramp up at the moment for um, because even for our team that's used to working remote, people are under so much more stress than they were before. So you really mm. want to, you know, it's, it's, it's physical distancing, but it should be really, you know, increasing social connection really because it's so tricky yeah. for people. And I, I, you know, I wonder about for you guys how hard that must be for you when people are also having to work so hard and so fast. But before we talk about him and his problems, let's talk about <laughs> us and our problems. You, you've done some psych in your background, haven't you, Edward? Done some what? Psychology. Yeah, yeah, I did a four-year degree a long time ago. But yep, yeah, so but I've done. I did work as a behaviour support uh, practitioner as well. So if you could do a little bit of free therapy with Vanessa <laughs> and I at the moment, that would be fantastic. So <laughs> we're, we're struggling with me being really committed to getting shit done quickly, and I'm putting a lot of urgency down the pipeline. Anybody who I'm speaking to is going away a little bit more anxious than when they, before they spoke to me about the urgency of needing to get stuff done in our organisation. And I'm not very good at being comforting and supportive. Vanessa is playing the role of trying to hold the organisation and support people to de-stress during these really difficult times of stress. As, as a couple, it's very difficult for those two energies to come together. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that does sound tricky. <laughs> I think... Um, but having said that, from an outside perspective, you know, the DSC, um, you guys are super uh, responsive and, you know, ahead of the curve, you know. So whatever you're doing, I mean, I think that's the thing sometimes when you're in, I always think two people only know what, what two pe what's actually going on. You know, that, uh, the, the reality is, uh, is only ever right there for those two individuals. So, um, but regardless, the, the, the functionality of the, of your organization seems uh, incredibly tight. So you're doing something right. And there's probably some element of the, the two um, energies uh, working in unison to get to, to get the outcomes that you need, I'm sure. But I mean, at this yeah. time, you're likely to, to, to hit people up pretty hard sometimes. I think that's... Well, that's where I wanted you, to take it too and because I want to let you off the hook because we don't really need relationship counselling. But it's interesting that, that yeah. because we're a cup, yeah. because we're co-directors, those two roles kind of like are splitting into two, which is really helpful. It means that Roland can be yeah. fully gung-ho pushing people and I can be much more supporting. But I'm interested in when, you, when, you, when you're a sole person in a role because I work with a lot of leaders and how that juggle of those two really important parts of your role go on for you do you understand yeah. what i mean so you must yeah. have to kind of push and you know get um, get, get people united behind single purpose moving yeah. forward at a much faster rate than usual and at the same time conveying care and support or not yeah or not yeah. then people are leaders are struggling with this at the moment you know mm. like one one of those things falls off 
is what Some I'm I think if you, if you, yeah, I think if you've got a sort of a single playbook approach, then you're going to come unstuck unless you've got like you guys have got the dynamic of the two equal um, powers, but different different approaches. You know that that also works. I mean, I think people in my situation are um, do need to uh, look to the um, you know the HR and the industrial side of uh, of the work uh, in terms of the legislation and requirements and all of our you know those documents around codes of conduct and other things and the expectations of the role um, together with the quality side um, and I think using you know that's what I do I really I think people know that I'm a reasonable sort of person who's um, but I have high expectations around what what people are doing um, and if it if it's not if it's not met then really you can I like people that just you know self-select out or push you know happy to push people out if we need to um, and you know but I think at the end of the day you know the, the the expectations are very high in the disability sector we've got to have high standards and high you know, high quality care uh, and support and innovation. You know, it's just an exciting place to work. And if people aren't, aren't interested or, or in their particular role, uh, then they either need to look to to how they branch into something new within the within that sector. There's so many opportunities, or they, you know, need need to move on uh, and do something one different. The, one of the things we wanted to talk to you about is. We've been banging on for years and years that culture eats process for breakfast. I think a lot of people mm. have heard that through us and, and around us. We didn't invent it. But the, the what does that mean, Vanessa, just briefly? It doesn't matter what you intend, you, you know, you, the strategy you have in place or the or the rules and procedures that uh, you put in place mm. to, to manage and control. The culture is actually king. The culture will actually decide what, what people really do. What happens, and you guys yeah. have worked really hard at culture for a number of years. Mm. Is it paying mm. dividends when you can't do Absolutely. as much? So, can you tell us a yeah. bit about it? Yeah, I think, um, and that's what always attracted me to the Disability Trust. To be honest, was the culture. Um, you know, I met Margaret Bowen uh, when I first moved to the Illawarra in about 2010. And I always thought, you know, that's that's an org I could see myself working with, uh, and for. Um, and uh, I think, you know, she's she's a taskmaster herself, but she also has uh, happy to be proved wrong, happy to be uh, to re you know take some steps back to do something differently. But if we've sort of agreed on a, on an approach, then then do that approach. And if if it needs to change, communicate that. And we'll do something differently, but don't do this half half baked. Oh no! Well, the boss said we have to do it, and then we're going to do it, and it's not working. And I told you so. Uh, well, that's not helpful for anybody, least of all our our clients. At the end of the day, so you know we we're all we're all on board with strategies and thinking around. You know, be it for us, it's been centralisation. You know, centralising a lot of our. Um, uh, our processes and systems we're all on board with that as the strategy but the steps to achieve that outcome are you know are not always clear you can see a few steps in front and then you you know you but we're all on 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 mm. song with the overall strategy if that makes sense and you're reminding me i really noticed that when i worked with you guys a few years ago the the very strong learning together approach and the sense that you're all mm. in it together um everyone mm. you know from the top Top, um, top to the front line it's sort of in 
in it together to solve the problems and not pretending it's mm. perfect. And it's a very strong culture, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll give you an example as well. Just now we've got, I did apologize for a, a COVID-19 sort of consultation that we're doing with our frontline teams at the moment. And <clears throat> we ran three of those yesterday where we had about, I think a hundred people across the three sessions uh, joining in for an hour. Um, and really those are about saying to people, Margaret, opens it and I say some some things about obviously infection control staying out of the workplace if you're not well all of those things that you need to say but importantly it's about saying we need you to help us understand what's happening uh, in your um, you know supported living services in your um, you know clinical programs uh, how do we need to adapt uh, to this, you know, for one of, you know, it's a cheesy term right now, but unprecedented scenario that's unfolding. And, um, you know, we mean that genuinely. It's not, we're not ticking boxes for the sake of industrial uh, uh, processes. Obviously the unions, um, you know, very interested in those things happening. But at the end of the day, um, we're, we're happy to have those guys on board too. They're only gonna only gonna strengthen our response. Jumping in there, Edward, there'd be a bunch of organisations out there and the big ones, and I've worked for or with some of them that would be bunkered down with a, a war cabinet of five or six people making all the brilliant decisions from head office. And you guys mm. are choosing to do a different approach, which is to also mm. make sure you're, in, you're connected to the people at the front line. Some of these folks in some of the bigger organisations are scared of talking to the front line. They wouldn't do that. So... Is it challenging to talk to the front line? Is it working? What's happening? Look, I think, no, I love that. I think it's um, really, <laughs> that, that is the business, is the front line. So if we don't, like if things aren't working, if people are scared about um, how to use personal protective equipment or, or the stocks that we've got available and that's going to keep them out of the workplace, then we're screwed, really. Uh, we need to have people... Um, understanding our strategy uh how we're going to use these uh those stocks if people aren't sure that they can you know speak up and let their manager know that uh, or let their colleague know even better um that they think they should go home because they they look you know they're, they're not well or that we've just done their temperature and they're over 37.5 or whatever it is um we've got to have that uh focus on the the people that we're caring for uh, who, who do have uh, vulnerabilities both through the fact that they've got so many people in their lives uh, and also many of them do have uh, additional um, respiratory and immuno um, factors on top of that that mean my goodness we've got to we've got to keep that at the forefront of our thinking uh, we can't avoid the the rotation of faces sometimes in people's lives but uh, we do need to make sure that team is really focused on uh, all of those things that are going to keep the, the people in those uh, homes particularly um, safe. Before we came on air, yep. you, you talked about um, what you're doing today. Mm -hmm. I just asked you to do a voice check by um, talking through what meetings you've got today. And you, you spoke about some work you're doing at Stockton, which was Vanessa and I both looked at each other with that holy shit look. So, in the, Because in the midst of all of this, that's what they're doing. Yeah, yeah so tell, mm -hmm. us, tell us what the uh, Stockton part of your day is. And tell us what Stockton is in case so, anybody doesn't know. Yeah, so Stockton um, is is a large residential centre that's still 
functioning in uh, Newcastle, so just, just across the river in uh, New, beautiful Newcastle. Um, it's one of the three remaining large residential centres that still have some residents uh, living there. Um, in terms of uh, Stockton, Canangra in Morissette, um, and uh, up in Port Stephens, the Tomaree Centre. And those are um, centres that have uh, operated for, gosh, I don't know, a, a very long time. Um, and people have lived there for, for most of their lives. Many of the people that we're seeing moving out uh, into uh, new homes in the community um, are, you know they're they're incredible people. Uh, they're most I think the median age of the people that we're supporting moving out is sort of sixty three or something. Um, many of them have lived for forty years in in these centres, and um, they're moving in with uh, sometimes on their own in their own villas, sometimes into two bed villas, sometimes three, and sometimes five person homes. Uh, and we we've opened now 11 of those um, and uh, su supposedly before the middle of the year another five but uh, we do have people uh, moving in today um, and we, we're really thrilled that that's still still going ahead but uh, what's happening today we've got a couple yeah. of gentlemen moving into a, a home their new home in Mount Hutton from um, which is up in Newcastle and um, yeah, so they're they're really excited, absolutely gagging <laughs> to get to get into their new place. They've done a lot of visits. They're absolutely stoked, and they are beautiful homes. Um, I've I've been to all of them, um, and uh, the staff are absolutely magnificent. We've got some uh, terrific people there, Paula and her team at um, the home there in in Mount Hutton. She's um, really one of these um, team leaders that we have that's uh, absolutely um, knows full well what's going on with this transition. This is absolutely historical for New South Wales and, and Australia. Stockton is, is one of the large, it's one of the largest institutions still left in Australia. There's hardly any institutions for people with disability left in Australia. It's one of the last to close. So the people who've been in there have been amongst the most marginal, marginalised and institutionalised for the longest period of time in Australia's history. Today, your organisation is taking a number of those people in a pandemic, yep. in the middle of a rising yeah. pandemic, and moving them yeah. out to community living. So there's a there's a bunch of ironies and a bunch of wonderful yep. historic moments in that, Edward. So I just wanted to put a, a narrative over the top of it. And, and that yeah. it's wonderful that you didn't postpone it. Yeah. I, I bet you can see it. Oh, well, it gives me chills really thinking about it. Um, I mean, I think what we see is we do see my um, executive manager there, Tracy Wright, who's an amazing woman. Um, you might know Tracy. She was formerly um, CEO of the Centre for Intellectual Disabilities uh, for a little while and worked within government herself. Incredibly passionate when it comes to um, uh, person-centred approaches and uh, is working overtime with her team up there. And I think, you know, some, certainly we're looking at, at uh, the, the future um, transfers, transitions for people. Um, we do need to think every day. We're reviewing what's happening, but um, uh, we just think we've seen really good outcomes for people moving to community. And we think it's, it's they're so excited. Their families are excited. Uh, we want to sort of keep moving if we can, but we can see probably that 
that's sort of being pushed back uh, a little bit at this, you know, <laughs> with this la these last houses, but we literally couldn't stop because we had staff trained, even though we'd done all the social distancing. Uh, and in fact, as I say, um, people are, you know, thriving, I would have to say. You'd have to guess that they're mathematically safer in smaller houses in mm. the community than they are in large That's institutions. Right. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I just... It just makes me want to ask you, Edward, because obviously you're not letting COVID, you know, stop some of these really significant things that are happening. But what are what are you finding are the sort of the biggest operational challenges, you know, the hardest ones to solve with COVID? And we sort of imagine that every day you're triaging two or three mm. times a day, you know, what do I need to get done next? What do I need to get done next? Is it really the, the way you're operating or? Look, I think there's a few things that, um, interestingly, with the closure of our uh, group services. So last week um, on, uh, you know, it was, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday, it's now um, Wednesday uh, of the following week. So a lot happens in a week. It was about a year we, ago, really, wasn't it? Yeah, it does. We yeah. decided that, you know, with all of the indications that it would not be responsible to continue to operate those group programs. And um, it was probably a little bit ahead of other other people's decision making around that. I think um, a lot of other providers are doing that now as well. Um, but I, even even so, I've noticed some business as usual approaches uh, over the weekend that I found a bit surprising. But we we made that decision. So uh, that I think it's just the the enormity of communicating with all of those frontline staff we've got uh, we've worked really hard around permanency for our staff um, over the last few years so I feel somewhat that I can um, sleep straight in bed at night if I get some sleep uh, we've tried really hard to get people across onto permanent rosters wherever we can so I think we're up around 80 84%, something like that, of our shifts are filled by permanent people, uh, which is really good. Obviously, they're not. There's a lot of part time in that. I will say it's not all. It's not as though we've got. Uh, you know, we we'd like to be better in terms of full time uh, uh, positions for our direct support professionals, but um, that's where we are at the moment. So, but nonetheless, a lot of casual and a lot of really good casual people. Uh, have been impacted through the closures. And I think this, this week and next week indeed is about um, with our, uh, our rostering systems is um, communicating with hundreds and hundreds of people, trying to redeploy people where we can, try to retrain people where they need it into working in um, group home environments. Um, and uh, so that, that, that in itself is big. I've just walked past our um, our L&D team doing some socially distant uh, infection control training uh, for people um, who will be working in the, in the group homes. Um, so, yeah, so it's all of those sort of things. I'm also really focused on the personal protective equipment side of things, yeah, uh, yeah. to be honest. I think that's a huge problem for Australia and it, I feel like we're a bit of a backwater at the moment <coughs> in on, on a global scale um, when it comes to personal protective equipment. Hopefully by the time this podcast goes to air, this won't be the issue that it is, Edward, but we, we're working with a clinical nurse up in New South Wales to do PPE nationwide training. She can't get one set of PPE equipment to prepare the training. So hopefully when people are listening to this, they laugh and say, we've moved on from mm. that, but that's just. It's very dangerous. Yeah. 
And I was going to say, where, as you say, Australia feels like a backwater and then the disability sector feels like the backwater of Australia, doesn't it, around which, some of yeah. this equipment. Which is my, my final question. I don't yeah. know if you've got any other, Vanessa. But is disability the poor cousin in this game? Because we're hearing a lot about aged care. We're hearing a lot about vulnerable people. We're not hearing a lot about the disability sector. Are you feeling like that or are you feeling like you are? I think absolutely we're the poor cousin. I think it's ridiculous. We've got 30,000 people in um you know in various sort of group shared living arrangements who need support around this country supported by thousands and thousands of staff who you know if that is not the front line of community health you know you tell me what is i mean we know that aged care needs absolutely the same focus but we are in deep trouble uh, if we don't get our eyes on the, the this issue i mean we, we've been communicating with Minister Roberts' office and, and Minister Ward here and, uh, you know, up through Bill Shorten's side, um, you know, to try and raise this. And I know the, um, whatever it's called, the AHPPC, their focus. But we heard from the World Health Organization that there's a global short supply of personal protective equipment. Um, now, it, we can't have a situation where every, if they're expecting community management of outbreaks, which I think is absolutely the most appropriate way to go if you want to support the health system from completely falling over, then you cannot do that without um, the appropriate PPE. And we would not normally stock face shields and gowns and, and boot covers and gloves of the nature that are going to be needed. Um, so we just have to, have to work this out urgently. Uh, do we need to fly a Lockheed over to bloody... Uh, Probably Wuhan could do it. Uh, they had 42,000 uh, frontline healthcare workers, uh, not a single infection uh, mm. for, for those people. And they've, you know, if we, I, it just feels like we're playing a guessing game. I mean, I, I may well be COVID-19 positive as we speak. Uh, I don't know. And we just don't have the, that we should just be doing straight up mandatory testing for all of our, all of our frontline teams. It's just, you know, we cannot, uh, run that risk. I just want to summarise the, the key points of what you're saying here, Edward, so everybody can hear them that doesn't already understand them. But there's tens of thousands of people with disability who require a level of support which cannot be turned off. They require a range of staff to come in who have a range of um, con connections that they bring into those person's homes. Tens of thousands of those people have immune vulnerability issues. That Some of them are right... Um, very, very vulnerable, are already on ventilators before COVID-19. Unless something significant is done around that situation, significant numbers of people are going to die. And it is not being treated in the same way as the aged care sector. It's not being given the same level of priority or attention. Is that a reasonable? It's, that was my own opinion, obviously, but is that reasonable? No, I think that's that feels like an accurate... Uh, assessment and statement at the moment it's it's mentioned as a bit of an afterthought I think a lot of the time yeah. um, the other I'll... thing I heard you saying too or what was was in the subtext of what you were saying was that as as um, as workers at the moment they're effectively acting as health workers so that we we need they protective um, PPE um, for pre preventing infection but we're also attempting to care for people with COVID in their homes we're attempting to take the mm. pressure from the hospital system and that requires right. a really high quality PPE so 
uh, yeah. and, and that's not being addressed. And, yeah. the, and the issues will change right. as the weeks go by. Then it'll move on from PPE to the fact that we can't get nurses and we need to track train workers more in a medical, paramedical mm. type fashion. So the issue is going to move pretty quickly, but we mm. need to wind mm. up and we need to let you get back to yeah. your day job and, and just want to thank you. Thank yeah. you, Edward, for um, being Edward. And thank yeah. you also for making time yeah. for a podcast when you've got a, 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 some really serious stuff to get yeah. done. And we, we just want to no. wish you and the Disability Trust, um, you know, Godspeed. And I'm not religious, but mm. you know, Godspeed, good luck. And um, our thoughts are with you. But yeah. you've clearly got something to say. Well, I just think, um, you know, this is, I really am cautiously optimistic we're going to move through this COVID crisis. Um, it's going to be, it's going to get uh, messy, I think, at some points. But uh, the thing for dis people with disability in Australia is it's it's tantalisingly close in terms of the, uh, the the things that are going on within the NDIS operating environment in terms of, uh, you know, achieving great things for in terms of quality of life and outcomes. And, and um, I think... You know, there's a lot of fear within government and other places that we, you know, the increasing costs associated with NDIA, but that's often, a lot of that's associated with the design of the scheme. And I think if we really get back, and there's been so much unmet need in our community, um, we're seeing that starting to be met. And then I think what we'll see over time is the tailing off of, of a lot of costs. There's still, there's high costs, but we're going to see um, some terrific innovations and I really hope we can continue on that path. We can learn a lot through this COVID um, crisis and, uh, and come out the other side with that strong focus in mind. I, we can't see that disrupted. I, lo I love that you say that and it comes across when you, uh, it's come across to me the whole time, your optimism and you're you know, seeing it as an opportunity. And I, I just mm. want to join Roland too in I'm really appreciative that you've given us this opportunity. I feel like you've given us a little bit of a window into your, into your world and the way Disability Trust is approaching this. I really appreciated it. Thank you, Thank Edward. you so much, Thanks, Edward. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Disability Done Different, Candid Conversations, a podcast by DSC and produced by me, Maya Thomas. Since we recorded this episode, we've released seven new resources for organisations to support your planning and action through COVID-19. You can check them out and subscribe at teamdsc.com.au.